future is now. Future is Now is a podcast series exploring intersections between art and social change. Produced by Zed Galleries, Sharzad Arshadi, and Caroline Künzli. The title comes from a song by German punk rock singer Nina Hagen. She sings, 1968 is over, it's over. Future is now. It's really going to be a better world. Her lyrics express our feeling that change for a better world is happening right now through the work of many. In each episode, Future Is Now will tell you these stories of change, stories of artists and art projects that inspire us. As you listen, we hope these stories will inspire you too. Hello, you are listening to Future Is Now. I'm your host, Shahzad Arshadi. In this episode, I'm inviting you to listen to my interview with Frida Gutman that I recorded a few years back as part of a personal project with focus on Montrealers' life story whose focus is on community and social justice activism at home as well as abroad. With Frida, we talked about her life her art, her family's migration to Canada in the early 20th century. She also talked about Jewish community in Montreal and North America and their involvements with radical union movements during early 20th century, as well as her own activism during 60s and 70s until now. Frida Gottman has worked as a printmaker, photographer, and as an installation artist. Her work has been featured in numerous solo and group exhibitions in Canada, the United States, and internationally. Her art practice and her political activism came together in a series of installations, in particular one about the genocide of the Mayan people of Guatemala, the road of war, and an installation concerning the global system of food production and distribution, the global menu, and much more. Frida mainly works outside of the gallery system. Well, I come from an immigrant family. My, my father and his family immigrated in the early part of the 20th century. Although my mother was born here, but it's the same kind of background, like her parents immigrated here. Very poor, and kind of uh, my father and his family, they worked their way up, you know, like, first, first of all, being merchants with on pushcarts, and then stores, and then... Finally, my my father opened a factory and had a a business of men's clothing. Like my father, although you know he made it, and that's what you were supposed to do. You came to America and you you made a better life for your family. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still all the you know dislocations and 
and then what do you do with your kids who are growing up different <laughs> in a different world and so on and 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 also I grew up in Utrema which was then like a a Jewish enclave you know especially like uh, Jews that came from the same area as my parents um, including uh, William Shatner's parents <laughs> mm. where do they come from it, they came from Romania which is uh, and now it's part of the Ukraine so but but you know as Jews they had no attachment to they didn't feel they were Romanian you know mm-hmm. they were Jews like and they grew up in a kind of ghetto mm-hmm. well I was born in 1934 the expectations my 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 parents had of me that I would go to high school and then at the age you know after that I would get married and have kids and that was the expected thing mm-hmm. you know because they wanted things for me that I didn't want for my 16th birthday they were when I was, they were already worried about me not being interested enough in boys <laughs> <laughs> so they they made a surprise party for me <laughs> and they got me a date and the boy that was my date was was showed clear signs of being gay but not that anyone would not maybe probably he didn't even know that that I found out about it before, so I had to pretend I didn't know, and then pretend to be surprised. <laughs> you know, there was that kind of conflict between, like, I was the sort of bad girl, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to, but but I knew that, you know, I didn't want what they wanted for me. But at the same time, it wasn't easy for me, because I felt, I felt very alone. I didn't know anyone who thought the way I did, except when I read books. Reading was a, a wonderful, way to, you know, to verify my life, because, oh, people think like I do, wow. <laughs> also, I, I loved history, I loved reading about history. It was very important to me to know what was going on in the world, so I was always like, I read newspapers or watch the news, and that's, <laughs> there was no Facebook then, but, and my Jewishness, it was about, you know, admiring, like, like, Rosa Luxemburg and Emma Goldman and you know all the those the heroes the the people who fought for justice and uh, like I felt that you know early on and I also I felt like what happened in the world had something to do with my life and I grew up during the war too so like I have memories of my father listening to Hitler on the radio and ranting about Jews and um, so like I always felt like that what was happening you know in history, what was happening in like was not just a background to my life, but really part of my life and, and uh, had a, its effects on me. I went to uh, Rhode Island School of Design to study art. It was it was very hard to get my parents' permission, but finally I did. I think I had a, an aunt, my father's sister, who. I think we had a kin- we had some sort of kinship because she she was a socialist. She had a, a little salon of you know socialists because there was a lot of socialists and anarchists and communist Jews then and leading strikes and so on. You know, participating in ways of getting justice for working class people. So there was there was that kind of Jewish community. Where was I going with this? Your, your aunt. <laughs> oh, so my aunt, yeah. So she, yeah, so she 
yeah, she was a socialist, she was a vegetarian, she got married, she got divorced. This is the early part of the 20th century. And she wrote a novel about life in what they called the old country, where they came from. She became schizophrenic. And I'm sure it's from, with all the weight of, you know, being so different in the family. And uh, so she was institutionalized in the Douglas Hospital. And I think, um, I think my, I think she saved me in a way because I think my father worried that if he, you know, took up this oppositional um, stance against me, he was worried that I might turn out, like, you know, the same thing might happen to me. So I think, in a way, I think she was my savior. In a way, that I, she was the most, you know, intelligent, knowledgeable person in the whole family. You know, and she really, she knew what was going on in the world, and she read and everything. Mon pays, ce n'est pas un pays, c'est l'hiver. Mon jardin, ce n'est pas un jardin, c'est la plaine. Mon chemin, ce n'est pas un chemin, c'est la neige. Mon pays, ce n'est pas un pays, c'est l'hiver. Dans la blanche cérémonie où la neige au vent se marie, dans ce pays de poudrerie, mon père a fait bâtir maison. Et je m'en vais être fidèle à sa manière, à son modèle. La chambre d'amis sera-t-elle Combien de les autres saisons pour se bâtir à côté d'elle The British North America, when the British took over the French colonies here, the, they gave a stipulation to the Catholics could have their own education system and so if you weren't Catholic you went to the Protestant school board where you could be Muslim or Jewish or anything we were badly taught French we never used French we, we had no contact at all with with the you know with French communities and the city at that time was very you know divided so Outremont was you know wealthy francophones like Trudeau's family lived there, and Jews in Utrecht, um, you know, in the East End, it was largely working class francophones. I never went east of Saint Laurent. I never spoke to a francophone until I was an adult. I never knew one. Uh, Verdun was like working class Irish, mm -hmm. Scottish, you know, immigrants. Mm -hmm. So the city was all like all these different enclaves. There was a, a small black community in, you know, in Little Burgundy. The Montreal that is now is like, you know, completely, completely changed. All, all these communities were segregated, separated from each other. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there weren't walls, but you know, it's just that's where people. If you were, if you were Jewish, you this area if you were you know if you were an immigrant from Scotland or Ireland you you lived in Verdun and I went to teacher training and I first taught in Verdun the first time they had seen a Jew or had any contact with a Jew I mean this is what the city was like then and they weren't sure what to do with me <laughs> actually I was sort of like an activist in waiting because I like when the when the Vietnam War was on, like, and then I, I started getting involved with, we were a group of people, we helped um, draft evaders coming from the States, coming out 
come over from the border. Also, like, the feminist movement started. I belonged to a, a collective, a, we were women, we were, I forget what we called them, consciousness-raising groups, women's groups. So this is like, you know, in the 60s and 70s. You know, looking back on it now and, and the way I, my political ideas, like the, it was very much about, you know, white women, but like not, not getting their share of, and not getting the privileges and the things that men got. So like it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of analysis we use today where we see all oppression sort of connected. And um, especially, you know, as we, as white people, a sense of the kinds of privileges we have and the kinds of, you know, racism wasn't, wasn't part of it, an analysis of racism. And certainly not any analysis about indigenous whose lands we were on. So yeah, so the Vietnam War, that was kind of my first, and feminism, my first, you know, ways of trying to be political and, you know, put my, the way I lived mm-hmm. in sync with my politics. Mm-hmm. This uh, conscious group, consciousness group, women's group, it was in Montreal or it was international? No, it was in Montreal, but women were, were doing that, you know, especially, in, I think it came from the States. Like every, Actually, the women's movement came to Canada through the, the the women who were partners of the draft evader, of, of uh, evaders of the, mm-hmm. of the Vietnam War who came to Canada and the women sort of brought at least in Montreal that was true mm-hmm. they were evading the draft uh-huh. they were and Trudeau pair was you know was sympathetic and let them in and they they mostly came to Montreal or they, they I think they came all over from all all over Canada mm-hmm. and they were very left wing very mm-hmm. communist I think the sixties just blew me away because like suddenly everybody was like me you know like <laughs> it was such a sea change in the 50s was such a an era of conformity and and very sexist kind of delineation of women women and men's roles like i just i remember there was an article in life magazine johnny can't read because his father does the dishes you know this it was that was the 50s the 50s was grotesque <laughs> so when the 60s came along I just couldn't believe like suddenly you know wow <laughs> there was something happening everywhere and it was, like you know in the state against the Vietnam War it was like you know sex and drugs and but but also good you know poly- real criticism of society and uh, fighting against the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and like I remember once the Democratic uh, Convention uh, in 1968, there were people demonstrating. The cops rioted and they were like beating up people. And they were ferocious, you know. I was watching on television and, and they, were the, the, they were chanting, the whole world is watching, the whole world is watching. And it's true, like I was watching. Yeah, like the 60s was just a revolution. It was amazing. <laughs> and you, you felt this is, this is, this yeah, is, yeah, this I, is you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That time, it was very important. It was very, uh, you know, inspiring and everything. 
So I think like I gradually became just became more and more of an activist and you know I, I was able to because what other people were doing and especially inspired by young people and mm-hmm. you but you were involved in the uh, South South America as well. Yeah, yeah. Can you explain Yeah. Well, um at the time uh you know there were what there were people coming from Guatemala cuz there because uh, there was a genocide going on and after um you know several years of doing prints i decided um re- do real political work that would talk about you know and the the genocide going on in guatemala was um most people didn't know about it you know um and it was horrible and it was um it was against the indigenous of guatemala because actually um i don't know what the percentage is but a good percentage of the people who live there are are indigenous and um like in chile years later they there was a a moderate government that wanted to nationalize some things and um the united F- fruit company you know john foster dulles was he was the foreign minister of uh, in the United States of I don't know what they call it but anyway and his brother was head of um you know Chiquita Banana like they had huge land holdings there mm-hmm. so and the new president was going to nationalize it. and in 1954 they brought him down the Americans the CIA and and and, and then there was a succession of like you know vicious dictators mm-hmm. who um murdered disappeared you know and there were, you know I I was part of a of a support of a Guatemalan group that was partly refugees from there um this is in the 80s and so I decided I wanted to like use my work to tell people what was going on in Guatemala and I it was a big multimedia installation. Uh you can see pictures of it on, on my Facebook mm-hmm. on my uh, website. website. Yeah. I didn't want it to be just something that happened in a gallery. So I worked with um you know support groups uh um we brought speakers, we brought uh Rigoberta Menchu here who is a Nobel Peace Prize you know about her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We brought her to speak. We brought Frank LaRue who was a lawyer then. Um we had fundraising concerts, you know, just so like there were all these things in addition to the show there were all these things outside so like it spread it from the gallery, you know, into the larger society. And that show went to I don't know about 13, 14 artist run centers across Canada cuz there now they're more professionalized but at the time they liked work like that some of them still do so and everywhere it went there were you know outside events or you know that to bring more people in and and then after that I did um I mean one of the feelings I had about the Guatemala show it's called the road of war I was that 
it would easy it would be easy for people to think of these people as far away and they're exotic with the beautiful clothing and everything. So I decided to do something that would sort of place us, you know, in relation to the rest of the world, the the third world we used to call it then. And so it was about food. It's called the global menu and how the people and the indigenous in the third world, all over the world, you know, produce our food. Um, and they're starving. Um, yeah, an attempt to show how we're part of that whole pattern of mm. dispossession of people's lands and mm. monocultures and pesticides and how we're complicit in this repression. So that like the show had like different sites. There was a, there was Chile. There was the Philippines. There was like a Canadian dining room. There was. Um, a Canadian supermarket, and that that and for that show too, uh, it went to not as many places, but um, quite a few to a space and mm-hmm. like in Montreal, Kuperg McGill then was uh, taking people on supermarket tours, so you know that we that was fitted in, and there was like um, anti-poverty groups, and again, so we had all these other activities mm-hmm. and. In the 90s, I, t- I was starting to fall in love with Walter Benjamin. <laughs> and I decided to do work about him, about, about his ideas and his life. But I used a lot of old radios, because he talked a lot about new technologies and how they change us, but we don't realize how much they change us until mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. Like parts of it showed uh, different installations, showed different galleries. Mm-hmm. In Canada, and then in in um, in Cambridge, Ontario, I, I had the whole show together, all, all all parts of it. So, and that that's sort of like the last the last time I really showed anything. I I sort of came to think, ah, I want to get out of the art business. I don't want to I don't want to be a professional artist. I want I want to be a an activist artist and just have all my place my work in a sphere of activism and so that was the late late 90s so since then i do that i i do prints i do street posters i've been wheat pasting my i do um yeah i keep working in different ways in art i like living in scenery like it's a nice community and there's lots of young activists and uh, and also the, there's Popir, which you know is a community organization that works on housing issues and is, uh, housing for low-income people and mm-hmm. against gentrification. And they um, put it, three times a year they put out a little newspaper, and I do a column for it called People's History of Montreal. Mm-hmm. And then this summer I've been wheat pasting them around, like enlarging them and wheat pasting them, which is uh, something I always wanted to do. Por cantar, 
ni por tener buen amor. Canto porque la guitarra tiene sentido y razón, tiene corazón de tierra y alas de palomita. Es como el agua bendita, santigua gloria y penas. Aquí se encajó mi canto, como dijera Violeta. Guitarra trabajadora, con olor a primavera. de rico ni cosa que se I've always wanted to know what was going on in the world and I felt like it also had something to do with my life I have like so this vivid memory of being in my kitchen one morning and hearing the news about Allende in Chile like it's a vivid memory for me of that that moment in time, I'm sure it is for a lot of people. I know what I was wearing, I know, you know, like it's, what, it's 1973, and it's just so vivid for me. What was the situation of uh, the, the indigenous people here? Very, uh, yeah. the activists were working toward that as well, or no, no, no. What indigenous people are doing now, you know, the consciousness that more and more of us activists have, or of it, and realizations about it is like that we're we're on their land. We're you know we're pri we have these white privileges. We're but that that wasn't part of it then. You know, it was. It was there wasn't that kind of uh, indigenous organizing, and there wasn't that kind of consciousness on our part, really. We do now, which is being forced on us by indigenous people. Mm. Yeah. Do, do you think it's uh, finally some change is going to come? All I know is like we have to keep fighting, like, uh, you know, because you know there's oil involved. There's <laughs> money but there's some struggles there's some in some cases there they've won and the resistance is all over Canada now mm. am I hopeful about the world <laughs> am I hopeful about, okay. you know. do you remember October crisis yeah I do mm -hmm. I do and uh, a lot of people got arrested mm. yeah but you know um, it was it was mainly francophones, and there was like a, an aspect of that was that was very nationalistic, and they certainly didn't um, acknowledge the indigenous who, who came before them, and many still don't. Um, 
but I, I, I wasn't like I, I'm, I've never believed in nationalism. I, it's always. I mean, I think uh, there was a you know injustice done to people who were imprisoned and. Um, I mean, uh, I, it was horrifying that Trudeau declared, declared uh, like, what was it, martial law or uh, apprehended insurrection. Or, you know, so civil rights were taken away. Mm. I mean, that was outrageous, but I basically didn't feel that involved because I went to, to me it was no nations, no borders. <laughs> yes, I, I was outraged at this... this um, you know, taking away of our rights, mm-hmm. and and people, you know, people being imprisoned, like a whole bunch of people, they just took everyone and put them in jail. Uh, uh, Frida, can you tell me about the time that uh, Jewish they were very involved in unions and in I guess at the fifties? Do you do you have any memory of those periods? I mean, the, I don't, I didn't live that, you know, because. Mm-hmm. Like, it was an earlier period, you know, there were like communist, anarchists, you know, Jewish ones, a lot of them were Jewish in, in, in the States too, and they, they were, they were radicals, and, and they, you know, organized unions, and, and fought the bosses, and, you know, and then, uh, I mean, the, what, what killed that was Israel and the Cold War. You know, not all, but there are instances of, <coughs> you know, extreme radical left-wing Jews becoming Zionists, of all things. Mm-hmm. <coughs> but but those, those you know, radical Jews in, in Europe were against the Zionists. There was, Zionism was not universally accepted for a long time amongst Jews. Mm-hmm. And Yiddish too was a victim of that, the Yiddish language, because the um, the Israelis saw it as part of, you know, the the weakling Jew, the you know, that went to their deaths and there's you know, that that's part of the macho ideals of Israel, you know, where mm. nobody's gonna do that to us anymore. We're gonna do it to them. Mm. That's part of it. And I think I think too, like uh, the Holocaust you know, knowing, you know, how is it possible that people could do such things, you know, like, realizing it was only too possible. And now, you know, I just, I don't even think Israel, of Israelis as Jews, you know, I think <laughs> they're these, like, fascist, nationalistic. In fact, Judaism, like, you know, if, 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 if you read, like, the scholars, you know, going way back and in time, the Jewish, great Jewish scholars, it was like Judaism was, it's diasporic. Mm. And you live, you know, the, what you're taught, like, you live with the people, you haven't necessarily chosen to live with, but you live beside everyone, you know, in peace and harmony. And, mm-hmm. and um, you definitely don't have a country. <laughs> and, and we see what's happened. Actually, before 2000, um, a lot of activists um, who were anti-Zionist and appalled by what Israel was doing, Mm -hmm. 
they only started organizing and, and trying to um, be active and oppose it. And um, it's only like, you know, in, in about 200, nobody was doing anything. And suddenly people said, hey, what are we doing? Yeah. You know? <clears throat> so um, I was in a, an early group that kind of didn't really make it a group. Of, it was a Jewish, I forget what it was called. But then I, I, I became part of Tadaman, uh, which started, I think, in 2005. Because uh, this, this uh, demonstration every Friday noon at the, in front of uh, Israeli consulate. That was Paju, I Paju. think, and yes. you know, people like me in mm. Tadaman, too. Yes, because I, yeah. I saw you there. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Mm -hmm. You took photographs mm -hmm. there, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that was, I think it was Paju, it was Paju. like yeah. Bruce and... His friend who died, uh, yeah, you know, I don't remember his name. yeah, Leila's father, Faraj, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah, they started it, but but we kept it up for a long time. It was several years, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah, people going regularly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Mm -hmm. This was the place that I saw yeah. the first day. Well, I think 2001, it was 2001, I said. Yeah, really, really, I, I, I didn't remember the dates. Yeah, yeah, it went on and on and on. Yeah, yeah. Not a very long time, yeah. And now, where do you live, Frida? In St. Henri. St. <laughs> Which I like a lot. It's like a little village and it's, you know, it, it's being gentrified like crazy. Like almost overnight, it's amazing. Like everywhere in Montreal, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but I like it here, you know, and I have community and mm. have Popeer. Yeah, yeah, like there's Popeer that, you know, works against uh, gentrification for housing and... Montreal changed a lot now compared to the period you were growing up and oh. the segregation. Okay. Now and, it's... And there weren't people from all over the world here. Too. Mm -hmm. You know, it was basically white. There was some, a small black community, but otherwise, it, no, it's it's not the same city. It's like this incredible change. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, also people grow up now here speaking both languages. It's not a problem, you know, it's not an issue. And, uh, and the, you know, we talked about that the the period of uh, Quebec nationalism, like young francophones aren't into that at all. They see things globally. Mm -hmm. um, they understand the world that way, you know. Mm -hmm. You don't think uh, Quebec nationalism exists that much in young people? Even I, I understand that they are very involved with uh, international, but when it comes to Canada, aren't they? You don't. I don't. Think I don't think so, mm. no. I mean, definitely not in the cities, mm -hmm. you know. But it's, you know, in smaller places where you have you have a lot of fascists. Mm -hmm. Like, more than we, <laughs> we, we were there, right? Mm. But fascism is, you know, all over Canada, mm. all, all over the world. Absolutely. It's, a, it's looming there. Oh, and that's what... Uh, that's what uh, one of the things Benjamin said. He said, you know, like it's like he, he always poo pooed the idea of progress. Mm -hmm. 
you know, for a long time now, we, we, we can't really talk about progress. But, you know, in the late 19th century, early 20th, you know, there was this machines and life getting better and better and mm. making progress. And even Marx, like, Marx thought the revolution was inevitable and mm. go through all these stages, but he said, uh, you know, fascism is always, it's always there, it's always lurking there. Mm. And, uh, um, you know, if you think that they're going away, you know, they're not. Like, it's a constant battle to, mm -hmm. you know, just having a much bigger mix of people from all over the world. Um, and and just in general, I think people, you know, more, uh, more conscious of, like, look at the student strike. That was pretty amazing. 2012. Yeah. And it wasn't just the students, it was everybody was out. Yeah. You had to start yeah. with the students, but you didn't stay there. No, no, mm -hmm. no, that's, mm -hmm. that's one of the things, like Benjamin said, we have to remember those things, because, or learn from them, you know, that's... Mm. Um, Where are we now as a, as a society? What do you see? What, what's the... Um, we have so many, so much war is going on. And war, the climate, the yeah, change. everything. Yeah, and and I feel uh, uh, we are not doing enough. I do too, but um, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe we have to, like, I mean, I think of indigenous people really laying their bodies on the line and. Yeah, that's. I mean, I, I too, like, it's such an insane world. But I think the only thing we can do is, yeah, find ways to do more and more and just keep on, you know, as if at least we're trying or sure. something. I don't know, you know. Absolutely. You know, there's a mighty, mighty machines against us. Money, big money. And well, one of your projects you work is in people's history. Yeah. Why you think it's important? Why what is the difference your the history you want to talk about is different from the histories we are reading in the books? Well, I think it's important to to know know that there were struggles uh, like all along and uh, to know about them, to remember them. And they can also like um, you know, be a, an inspiration. I think like this this quote I use is from John Berger. He was like an English uh -huh. Marxist art critic, and so he, he said that like mass demonstrations are rehearsals for a revolution. Uh -huh. A revolution may never come, uh -huh. but the, let's, you know, we, we know what's been done. We, I think we just have to do what we can. I, I like so easily you, 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 you say this word revolution. Because now it's very many people are they are fearful of revolution, but for you, what's revolution is for you? What is it? Well, you know, a real revolution would mean a beautiful world for where everybody is equal. Everybody, nobody starves. There's no war. There's. I don't think it's possible. <laughs> or um, you know, we're kind of with global warming. We're really running out of time. Mm. Um, I sometimes think, well, you know, 
human beings are flawed. They don't, they've destroyed this earth. We, we don't deserve it, you know, like, good riddance. <laughs> but there's also beautiful things about human beings, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. What is, what, so what, what are your hopes? Just that we just go on trying to, you know, I don't, I'm basically pessimistic. <laughs> but that doesn't mean I, you know, I'll do whatever I can or, but you, you know, you know Gramsci, he has this famous quote, Pessimism of the intellect, but optimism of the spirit. <laughs> so. Amazing. <laughs> why, uh, why do you think it's uh, important to uh, be active internationally? Well, I, I can't separate <laughs> what you know what happens here from what's happening in the world. I mean, take. Take um, the issue of mining, which is mostly Canadian-owned, and that's all over the world. They're destroying people and having people killed, and um, so you know there there ways have to be accountable here too. Mm. But then there's like you know there's so many things happening. People here that are happening. People all over the world. You know. Increasing poverty and homelessness, and <clears throat> and it's one one world now. It's one system. You know, it's not it's not even governments. Like what what can Trudeau do? You know, it's just <laughs> it's those what one hundred people who have <laughs> more money than everybody else in the world. <laughs> Anything you want to add? No, I, don't, I mean, you know, I, uh, um, when I think of my life, I've been, I've been very privileged. I've been, you know, able to be an artist and and also to, you know, I'm 83 now, so it's relatively, and I'm, you know, I'm in really pretty good health, so, so I have a lot to be thankful for. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm, you know, I've always been able to live my life in comfort, and so a lot to be thankful for. That's great. Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Interesting to think of all those things. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
interview was part of a very long interview that I recorded in October 2017 in Montreal. Our next episode, we will share our hopes and dreams with you. The earth that we wish to leave behind for the generations after us. What is the future we are hoping for? Thank you for listening to Future Is Now. You can follow us on Google Podcast, Overcast, Spotify, or Anchor. I'm your host, Shahrzad Arshadi. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to Future Is Now, a podcast series exploring intersections between art and social change. Produced by Zed Gallery's Sharzad Arshadi and Caroline Kunsley. This project was made possible by funding from the Canada Council for the Arts. Future is now.